Welcome to Continuing the Conversation. I'm Carl Amuzu. And I'm Glenn Collins. Fos Church is a community creating space for everyone to find hope, beauty, and purpose in the story of Jesus. Continuing the conversation is one of the ways that we are trying to create space for an expanded dialogue and interactions based on the conversations we are having at Fos Church. In the biblical narrative, we often see God use the unexpected and unimportant to bring about change in the world. The story of Jesus, his birth, life, death, and resurrection is no different. Our new conversation, started from the bottom, is an exploration of the good news according to Matthew. Over the next few weeks, we will look at snapshots from the book of Matthew that exemplify the good news found in the story of Jesus. This week, we join Christ between two armies. When Jesus comes into the world joining the people of Israel, there's already a story that needed an ending. Like many underdog stories, this one could only imagine an end that makes all the enemies pay. With Rome, that would be an incomprehensible sum. However, Jesus wanted to change the script by exposing the needed enemy and bringing both parties to the table, two mountains between the empires of Rome and Jerusalem. Jesus couldn't be the violent warrior they wanted because he created uncomfortable space for all people to be present at the same table while exposing injustice. It is in this uncomfortable space that the kingdom of God becomes tangible. So Glenn, let's jump in. Any thoughts about the message before we get to the head, heart, and hands questions? One of the things that always strike me when we're sitting in these passages were, especially in this one, where Jesus is speaking to someone who represents Rome, the centurion, the oppressive power in the land, and one of the most perfect insiders, the scribe who was an expert in the law. So you have a representation of the ideal person from each community. And the um, insider's notion of having an ending that is justice for him is the death of the Roman always reminds me of Nietzsche's comment against the Christianities of Europe when he said, you guys don't really want forgiveness. You want delayed vengeance because if you had the power now, it'd be the death of your enemies. Mm. Um, and that's, that's the notion that is like when we hear the voices from people outside of the community critiquing us, because uh, Nietzsche often gets a bad rap, but he's one of the most beautifully prophetic voices, I believe, for Christianity of that time period. And honestly, it still resonates today, because most of the time, uh, at least from uh, my tradition within American Christianity, it's not because we want to forgive our enemies. We just don't have the political capital to make our enemies pay. And so it turns into delayed vengeance because I don't have power now. Mm-hmm. And these stories of Jesus sitting in between two empires, two mountains, two symbols of uh, violent coercion saying both will have place here because neither one of you can exclude the other um, makes me a bit uncomfortable, but it's, it's one of those beautiful discomforts because it holds a way to a better conversation. No, oh, it's awesome, man. It's funny when you talk about Nietzsche getting a bad rap, it just made me think that Nietzsche is like the philosophical version of a one hit wonder. Like he's only known for that one line, (laughs) but like he actually has a really cool catalog. If you go back and listen, like his deep cuts are awesome. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) To be, to be fair, he's known for at least a couple lines. Like he's famous for the death of God, for the critique of vengeance and the idea of morality. Yeah, if you were to ask the average person, though, they would only get the death of God. And that's solely because it was on the cover of Times magazine back in, like, what, the 60s or whatever. Probably. So um, <laughs> what about you? Any thoughts have you, as you sat with the message from Sunday? Yeah, I, I, really, I, I really appreciated 
that notion of like sitting between the two mountains. Like, and then you actually, you actually spoke about three different mountains actually. Um, but that notion that like one mountain represents our enemy, one mountain represents our holy sacred place, but that it's actually sitting in between those spaces that we actually find the holy space of the table of Christ. And I, and I really, really appreciated that metaphor that you brought forward, that anytime we look to, to, to try to expose our enemy, um, we actually expose something in ourselves. And every time that we are able to include our enemy, um, include others, and we actually take away the labels of enemy and other, um, we actually begin to heal something in ourselves. At least that's, that's what I took away from what you were saying. And I, and I thought that was a really cool kind of point that you were bringing from that narrative. Um, one question, though, that I, I would love for you to expand upon a little bit is that in the message, like you kind of brought up some really cool metaphors, but you didn't actually expand upon them like in, 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 how, in, in when you like unpacked it. And I, I would love to just kind of hear some of your thoughts on like the whole metaphor of like that you chose in that because you chose like the foxes have holes and the birds have have nests. Why? Like, why did you choose that? Like, like unpack that for me. Uh, within that section of scripture, you have uh, Jesus responding to a person who had a promise to follow. He's, it said that the scribe, so the expert in the re religious law, said, teacher, I'll follow wherever you go. And Jesus' response to him was the foxes and the birds, which were symbols for the two empires there, because the foxes was a common uh, marker for Herod, who would be king over Israel at the time, like whether who's disputed or not by some of the people who, in the same way with our presidents um, or our prime ministers, you have people who say, he's not my prime minister. You still had that then who said, Herod's not my king. He Do doesn't people actually say not my prime minister? A certain demographic who I don't really feel like naming say things like that. Um, but uh, you had some of the same there to where they would say, Instead of not my prime minister, is like not my king, doesn't really belong to this dynasty that he's trying to claim. The birds of the air was a common moniker for the time for the, for the symbol of uh, Rome, which was the eagle. So it allowed in this one beautiful moment, the, um, one of the most trained people being able to be positioned between the two symbols that would naturally have a notion of opposition for in, coming straight out of his own story. So it confronted him um, metaphorically by pointing to animals in the field and birds in the sky with the inherent violence of his own story for how he thought the kingdom could come. Mm. Um, in that, as like, it's also something that we, we tend to like to see ourselves in the role of either Jesus, with Jesus, or future insider. So, you know, if we were there in that time, we probably would have been with Jesus and been, yeah, you know, gassing him up from behind. Like, that, that's it. That's, that's what's said. But more than likely, we'd be positioned in the scribe. Hmm. We would come as the expert of our tradition saying, does your messianic hope match what I want for my country? Yeah, no, that's, that's good. That reminds me like the, like the joke. I can't remember who said it originally, but the one where you have like the, the, you have like the evangelical, the Pentecostal and the Baptist, they, get, they all get killed in a car accident and go up to heaven. Um, long story short, like, you know, they end up arguing with Jesus about which is the real Christianity, you know, you know what I mean? And so the evangelical comes out after about an hour and he's like, man, I just didn't know so much. The Pentecostal comes out after about a couple hours and he's like, man, I got it so wrong. And after a couple days, like you just hear this like yelling, going back and forth. And then you see Jesus walk out and he's like, man, I got it so wrong. <laughs> 
like like what you're saying there just reminds mm -hmm. me a lot of that like it's just like this notion that um we would often see ourselves as the hero of the story but in order to do that we would have to make jesus wrong in the mix of it well, um even if it's not making him wrong it's making sure that um he over identifies with me rather than in the in the tension he's calling us into because that tension of trying to expose that narrative that says we are good as long as I can um, close the ranks, as long as I can purify the system. Because in that time, the question very much was, can we purify Israel by getting rid of Rome? And the only way to get rid of Rome is with the tools of Rome, we'll take sword and kill. So it, it exposes our own internal drives to say, we have peace as long as I'm in charge. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Right, like it's that whole Pax Romana idea, yeah. right? And just like Pax, insert your name or insert your tradition or whatever, right? Um, so, yeah, the base notion of tribalism, for sure. If you can be a part of my tribe, my system, then you must be right. And of course, um, if you've ever read uh, East of Eden, had one of the most beautiful lines of an old man working on his truck, and a gentleman came in and said, "Hey, thank you for helping me," and gave him a bottle of whiskey said, well, no, 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 don't take that to the house. Just put it in the back of the truck. He's like, why? Like, well, my wife says Jesus doesn't like drinking. And it's amazing how much Jesus and my wife agree on, so I have to obey too. <laughs> That's awesome, man. All right, well, each week, man, we enter into a conversation as a community through three sets of questions, head, heart, and hands. Uh, Glenn, why don't you just uh, break down those questions for us? The head, heart, and the hand is just a way for us to step into these questions, to ask three um, levels of question. The head is something conceptual. It helps us address framework, uh, presuppositions, just the things that we assume or think are obvious. The heart is a reflective base where we step into our own stories and try to say, how does this sit with me? And where have I seen that within my own life? The hands are where we try to take it to a tangible because nothing matters if it doesn't come a part of our world to where we can ask that question of how do I then live? How do I make it a part of my life? And that may be a small step of I know one act I can do or maybe a more intentional long-term plan of I can see how I engage these people or within these um, ways of giving myself to others. And so with that, let's just jump into the head question. And so what kind of Messiah or Savior are we or our traditions looking for? I know for myself, the tradition I was raised in, we were very much looking for a um, Christ the Conqueror. He was going to make up for all the weaknesses we had. Um, setting things to right or fixing the systems really was about putting our people in charge. And so everything I heard, heard about was you had this ultimate power figure, this one that was going to come in military force to coercively change all things. And um, at the end of the day, if you did not bow to this, then it was eternal damnation. And that this mm. was the strict structure. It was a now or else model, which created a rather fearful expectation because um, it was very punitive. Yeah, no, I, I, can, I can relate to that. Like I grew up in a very, with a very similar image in the tradition that I grew up in um, that was very much like I remember having conversations <laughs> as like a six-year-old 
Um, and people, it was less conversations, more people talking to me as like a six year old, where it's like, so when we have to join the armies of Jesus and kill our enemies, or we're going to be, or we're going to get beheaded, like what side are you going to be on? And it's like, what the? I'm like, I, I did not, not even know what to do with that because it was like the version of Jesus that they were expecting to come back was a warrior king who was going to slaughter all the enemies of God. And that way we were going to have a just world because while well, all the unjust people were going to be murdered or, well, we wouldn't say murdered, we would say killed in battle. <laughs> well, I was like, yeah, we had that, but I say um, some of my people took it one step further because a couple of the guys who... Well, for our small community would have been considered the cool guys for anyone outside of our small community would have been considered strange who, <laughs> who came back from like a renaissance fair with two swords and these guys were um, 19 and 20 and two tattoos on their shoulders that was very poorly done of kind of a strange goat head and said demon slayer with a line of blood coming out of the forehead of the goat and I asked, like, oh, what is this? And they said, well, we received a vision. I was like, yeah? About that tattoo? He goes, well, no, that the Antichrist is coming. The war is going to be upon us. And so you know how Revelation says that the, the blade is going to kill them. These are the swords that is going to kill the Antichrist. We're the demon slayer. Yep. And both of them very much bought into the point of getting a permanent tattoo and buying swords because they knew this war, one, you just have to think. I don't think if, if a very literal reading of everything happens, that whatever the demonic armies coming forward are gonna be, are still gonna be in 15th century battle tactics. They're not gonna need swords. They might update their weaponry. Um, <laughs> but it's like, it, it was that notion that God coming the ultimate battle, like they literally bought weapons to fight the good fight. It's funny because it sounds like the disciples in Luke where they go and buy swords and Jesus is like, oh, you guys got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but also, man, I think people are going to be asking you to check your shoulder for the tattoo. Oh, no, I will show that one. This one was not me. They were my friends, though. But even I went, I thought that was a step too far into the commitment of fulfilling intentionally the book of Revelation in a literal fashion. Yeah. And I find it interesting that, like, well, I, 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 I understand it in one sense because, like, the book of Revelation has so much, like, this imagery in it that just, like, captures your imagination. And so if you don't understand kind of the historical context or have any way to enter into it outside of this, like, fantastical, like, almost Game of Thrones type, you know, imagery... Um, like, what do you do with that, right? And so I can understand why people get kind of so enraptured by it, but it, it baffles me that that's the hope that people have. Like, you can read the Gospels, you can read the beauty of, like, you know, the restoration of all things and be like, yeah, but when things, everything is restored, God's going to burn it all, right? Like, I'm like, how did you get to that place after all the beautiful things that you read in the Bible? Well, at least for myself, since um, there was a lot of times I was attracted to um, such passion and um, absolute readings, because I, I was uh, very much in line with that, that I saw there was always an us and them to the point, um, to my own chagrin, I have to live with the fact that I tore out the evolution section of my bio biology textbook in eighth grade, because I didn't understand what theory meant in science. I was in eighth grade, raised by Pentecostals. So 
I knew theory meant not real, it's just a theory. I didn't know that was the highest form of science. So it said theory of evolution in the front, but then it didn't say anywhere else in the chapter theory. I told my teacher I will not um, read it on religious grounds. He said, just do your work, man. It's in your textbook. So I ripped it out of my textbook and threw it in the trash can by his desk. Like, it's not in my textbook. <laughs> and because he knew the fight my small town would have if he would have suspended me for destruction of school property over something that I claimed as a religious stance. He then tried to reason with me, which wasn't really in my wheelhouse at the time, say, I'm a Christian too. You can be a Christian and still believe science. And that's when I denounced his faith and went and sat down in protest because all I knew was that this warrior God was coming back and you only had the us and them and you better be with us. Yeah, man. So, like, with that, man, like, I, I would even say, like, you know, this is, this is kind of deviating a little bit, but I, I would ask that question of, like, how do you even enter into conversation when, like, from at least, no, for me, it's, like, such a span. Like, I, I, I'm, like, in all honesty, like, I've always been troubled by that version of God. Like, it's just, it was the version I, would, I grew up with, but I've always been troubled by it. And there was never space to actually have a conversation around it because if you kind of questioned, like, that kind of, version of that, that version of like that version of God returning, then it was tantamount to you, like saying that you're an atheist, basically like you don't believe in God anymore versus saying like, well, I just think God, like God looks a lot more like Jesus than it does. Um, you know, William Wallace. Uh, yep. Um, well, there's, there's some things I'd say you can't always have a conversation with things. Um, we have to have something we can draw to, but I know at that time, at least for me and the rhetoric I was raised around that saw an enemy um, behind every story. Um, to have a straight dialogue with would almost be impossible because it immediately would go to a different, a different narrative. And once you said, I'm not sure that's the way it is, let's say it says plain and clear in the Bible, and it'd usually be some sort of tagline, if it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. Or um, they would throw in something that sounds really um, kind of true to a, a pietist belief of like, this is just the simple truth we live it out. And you say, want to explain pietist? Okay, it sounds true to someone who's just really passionate about their beliefs and sincere. Um, and they'd say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And then they just, it'd be like a mic drop moment. But um, what I did find in those times is like coming from within those communities, if we stay away from that fight with the hyperliteralism and actually talk about compassion, community, and the acts of generosity in the community, the same people who said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, were also the people I knew who took the scripture seriously enough to open their house to um, people trying to reform their lives, who opened up their lives to um, one of them I knew took in a kid who was fresh off of drugs at 17 and taught him a trade so he had a way out of cycles of poverty and oppression. So yes, some of those things are really um, philosophically and theoretically, it's strange. But where I found commonality is that kind of passionate reading also lended them to say the world must be shaped and we're, it's, it's good to risk all for it. Mm. Which, I, which is one of the things that always I wrestle with in this is, um, 
Yes, my tradition called for that kind of militaristic savior, but it also meant that everyone was open-handed with their material goods. It meant you had, a, you had a greater sense that you had to act to help people, whether that was traveling down to the city to help with the homeless, um, giving to charities. And that's one thing that's troubled me being around um, different, more progressive circles is the lack of age or urgency has tended towards a reflective sense that at times seem to have less of a need to act in other people's causes. Yeah. No, I, I, that's, that's interesting, man. I, 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 you know, like, like highlighting that point of that sense of like urgency and practical engagement. Um, so even, even though like in some aspects of the story that, you know, you would or disagree or agree with, um, but that, that fact that they, they take it so wholeheartedly and so passionately, it leads them to a, a very urgent practical engagement that when we kind of treat that for those who would treat the Bible uh, more loosely, maybe don't necessarily come with that same sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's just an interest. It's an interesting point. Um, cause I almost, I would almost say that like, I, I think that you can do a lot with people who want to be practically engaged than those who want to be practically disengaged. Not to like label it as one is you know one way of reading is good or bad or anything like that, but well, and also it's not just, to it's say that if you're prone to a certain style of reading, it's a necessity. Because I also knew people within that very dogmatic reading who just said, as Carl said a little bit earlier, the world's gonna burn. I don't have to care. So they became very apathetic. But where I think we can have conversation is when you have a general draw towards humanity, mm-hmm. we can let go a lot of these more superfluous secondary things and say, if we can agree on the shared humanity like Jesus did here, not the Roman, not the scribe, but sit between the mountains. Yeah. And this would be a good way to... Well, s- I would just say, like, I just wanted to add one thing before you no, went yeah. in there, because I, I was very, th- I'm thinking in, this, in the same yeah. line you were thinking. But is that like on the same side that you have that practically engaged part from within that kind of conservative fundamentalist mm-hmm. um, background, I, I would also say you have that very practically engaged side that comes out of the progressive and liberal traditions yes. as well. Like whether it's social justice or um, what some people, you know, people will call like social gospel or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you have that very wanting to be practically engaged as well. And I find it really interesting that when I talk with people who are involved in like social justice movements, um, they're very practically engaged around an issue. But then when you look at their faith traditions, they actually come from both sides of that coin, mm-hmm. right? So it's not to say that, like, you know, if you come from a progressive background, you're disengaged or, or vice versa. You know what I mean? Oh, no, and that's one of the things I'd say. Um, I was uh, privileged to go to a seminary for a while that was more progressive. And because of some of the violence in the area, um, my professor said, you know what? I just want to give everyone permission. Um, next week, we're, ha- we're having a protest because of the death of these people. She's like, I'll give you a pass on homework and everything this week if you guys want to ride down there and be a part of this. Because she said, it's more important that you show up for the people out here than it is I get to give you another point of theory. She goes, but I'll teach the class for the people who want to show up. She said, but it's just, she said, in the face of tragedy, we have to show up for each other. That's awesome. And so absolutely, you have that draw, but that's that draw is I think where you can have that bridge between the two, where you can have that dialogue. Yeah. Now, if you don't, if you have an empath, a apathetic response towards humanity, if you say you got what you earned, so it just sucks to be you. I don't know where you have a conversation because yeah. everything else doesn't really matter to me. 
but no matter how extreme you are in your philosophical discourse or your religious discourse, if what moves you is the empathetic response to the needs of the other, then I think we can have a conversation because we can have something to draw from. So I'm gonna throw a yellow card up real fast. You used a few words in there that probably need a little bit of clarification. So philosophical theological discourse and empathetic response. Um, philosophical and theological is just the way that you tend to create structures in your mind to think through, analyze, and understand um, what it means to be a person in this world. Um, when you put theological to it, it's related to your religious tradition. And then empathetic response is the ability of the human to recognize need and be drawn towards the need of another human. But this gives us a good spot to step into, although we have been answering it a bit in this dialogue, the second part of the head question, how does sitting at the table between Rome and Jerusalem challenge or change that image of the Messiah we received? Mm -hmm. Well, I think for me, um, it's really, for me, like, like that's just my faith, my faith story was actually when I moved to Hawaii and I actually started to like read the biblical text for myself, um, I started reading the gospels. I just started reading right through the gospels and, and the image of Jesus that I saw was much more the one that sat between Rome and Jerusalem. And it, it changed the way that I actually engaged with people because prior to that, I had really strong opinions about who was in, who was out, not necessarily within like Christianity necessarily, but like who, who were good people, who were bad people, who were this, who were that. And realizing that, like, man, there's something about following Jesus that says, I actually have to hold attention to say, this person isn't necessarily out or this person isn't necessarily in. But when we find space at Jesus's table together, that those categories become null and void. And that, that was something that really challenged me in my faith at that time, because I, I was in an environment that really wanted me to say, well, no, Carl, you have to tell us who's in or who's out. And the more that I pushed against it, the more it's like, well, Carl might be out there, right? And so it, it, it was a really hard tension to try to hold on to. But the more that I just looked at the, the person of Jesus, the more that I, co I could not accept a God that was the version of God that I grew up with. You, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And, and, and so for me, that was a beautiful sense of liberation, but it was really hard fought tension in the middle of that. Hmm. So um, I'm just curious on, on that one sense of while you tried to sit in that tension, just part of your development, what was it? What was it like or what was the experience of realizing that losing the ability to uh, declare someone out? actually put you at risk of being outed yourself? Like, um, is that something that was something you wrestled with or how did you experience that idea that you, the change in the discourse actually threatened your position with the group? Um, and I think it's truthfully, it's only something like very recently that I, I've, I've really come to terms with. Um, like my, my posture now is more like, eh, <laughs> I don't really care. You know what I mean? As far as like, like the, the notion of reject, like, like I'm open to be rejected. That's okay. Like it's going it, to, it happens. Um, but at that time it was a really kind of, it was a scary thought because it's like, I would try to share people like, man, isn't this beautiful? This, this, this picture of Jesus. They'd be like, they just look at me dumbfounded as like, how did you get there? And I'm like, well, when I read the Bible, oh, it doesn't mean that this, this so-and-so told me it means this. And I'm like, how could you get that out of this? And I just learned really quickly. It's like, okay, don't share the things I find beautiful to, to, to the majority of the group because that's a dangerous thing to do. And so it, it just in all honesty, like 
as much as I want to say, like, I was like, you know, stand and deliver kind of person <laughs> the whole time. It's only been more recently in my journey where I just kind of came to a place like, if you can't accept me at the table, I don't really want to be at your table anyways then. Mm. You know what I mean? And I'm okay to stand up and get off and I'm okay to say, cool, we'll just go over here and do another thing over here. And this table's the happening table anyways. <laughs> Forget y'all. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Cause I'd say um, my experience uh, or in response to the question of what, how does the one who sits between the two mountains, the two empires, the two capitals, rather than take over, uh, change or challenge my received tradition? And personally, every time I ran into um, a point of incontinuity at this point to where um, this kind of alpha power figure person wasn't fitting the stories I was studying, I just assumed that if I could just get a little bit more information, a little more data, obviously this, this incongruency, this, the story is not lining up, could all be fixed. If I could just move the pieces right, I could go back to that tradition that could keep me so confident. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a matter of choosing the right side. So maybe I had to choose the Roman side that could be more armored up. Maybe I could choose the scribe side who had more nuance into the text they read. Um, but it was a matter of choosing the side and having to be affected by the one who did not choose side that's, that was able, because just before this, that story of the scribe with the, um, the fox and, and the birds of the sky, it said that Jesus ran into a centurion who said, I understand power structure, so you're in power, it'll function. And it, it's one of the few times in the, in the text where it said Jesus marvels, but it was able to marvel at the reaction of the centurion, which wouldn't have room in there. And seeing someone who could recognize the virtue and beauty of the people that I would, if I'm choosing sides, well, I do choose sides at times. I say, no, that's not the size I chose. You can't find beauty there, um, is where it challenged me most, because it was that act of Jesus saying, I marvel at your faith in this moment that can cause change and leaving it open-ended with the ones who assumed they were on the inside that they chose right, because that story didn't finish out. It left with the question, foxes have dens, birds have nests. So what does that look like for you now then? Like, how do you actually sit with that? Uh, with myself, uh, partly it means that when I engage with um, people who I wouldn't be able to um, sign off completely with maybe they're a bit more binary, black and white, or maybe they say there's no such thing as any sides anywhere that any act, because there are some schools of thought that any act of choosing is an act of violence and it's bad, um, that I have to start exploring and saying, okay, um, we're drawn to a radical humanity. So short of you harming the other people, I just want to create space. Like, tell me your stories. Um, and often I get things projected onto me for that. Okay. Um, but it's, it's usually in that of trying to say, short of you causing real tangible harm, I just want to sit in your story and say, okay, how does this help us understand our shared humanity? That's good. One, th one thing, though, like, I would say this, though, that I've, I've been struggling with more recently than, than before, because I, I think I probably chose a lot more of that, um, well, let's just be super inclusive mm -hmm. in, in everything that we do. Um, Jesus would be super inclusive in everything that he did. Um, and, but in the mix of that, 
I started like like I, I I've, I've always been reading like different liberation theologians mm-hmm. and things like that, and I and I remember just thinking about the way that liberation theologians would utilize the story of Exodus and the story and the ideas of liberation and things like mm-hmm. that, and that often when we disengage and say, well, well, God would just you know be inclusive of all of this, um, we do we actually do harm to people who are in need of liberation from mm-hmm. s- systemic oppression and things like that. Because um, there are real victims in this world. There are real people dealing with injustice in this world. Um, and often it's a place of privilege that says, well, I'm just going to kind of be hands off of this because I'm trying to be as inclusive as, as possible. And so I think that, that's, that's the challenge for me at that sitting at mm. the table part, because I think there's almost times at the table where we need to be like, no, that's white supremacy. No, that's injustice. No, whatever. Right. But yeah. Who are, that was a gentleman jogging down the road, not someone to shoot. Exactly, and and but at the same time, that but when 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 I when I when I kind of walk it back philosophically, it's like, well, no, uh, I'm not the person that's supposed to shout out at the table. Then, you know, you know, you know what I mean. And 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 I feel almost like handcuffed to be able to affect positive change by mm. when, when I'm sitting at the table in between Rome and, and Jerusalem, in a sense. Um, but at the same time, there's a need to say. Like, like I would say, because Jesus did it. I, I think mm-hmm. Jesus rejected both Rome and Jerusalem's way of being. Right? Was it so? He, it's not that he didn't choose sides. He says both sides are wrong. And I think there's a there's a prophetic tradition within Christianity that that needs to call us back to that. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't know if that makes sense, but oh, it makes it makes perfect sense um, because I think that's one of the um, misnomers we have that actually is a part that around some progressive conversation gets a little muddled because in fear of offending anybody, we uh, tend not to name anything. And that creates this gray kind of blended thing that is so indistinct. You can only say I have experience and nothing else. Um, And that's why I'd say for that, I try to hold space. And I had the qualifier of if there is tangible harm, and I say tangible so we don't get lost in the um, things that I was around to where people would project different sinless on other people and different wrongs on other, whether you watch the wrong kind of movie, listen to the wrong kind of music, or use the wrong kind of slang that they considered profanity. It's like they, they would hunt those things out, which to me is nonsense. But when you start measuring tangible harm, so with r- racial systemic oppression, then we can say, no, we must call this out. Sitting between Rome and Jerusalem wasn't a matter of him having no opinions and Jesus calling, um, just saying, oh, let's just chill. He, he actually called for um, very strong responses and said, we cannot kill, we cannot use coercion. Um, the kingdom does not come by that story. And this is a part that I think we miss a lot of the times is this, this response of sitting at the table does not remove you from the communities. Because that's still an act of choosing, saying, I choose my side, forget you. I'm just going to go do my own thing. But sitting between the two, allowing both to come forward and saying, that is not the way to build the world we hope for, mm-hmm. demands that we call out white supremacy. It, it demands that we call out um, social injustices. It demands that we be present in the world enough to be able to say this is not the way it has to be. Yeah. So if, if, we, uh, if any of our notions of inclusivity releases us from the obligation of being able to speak truth to power or to name real abuse, 
then I'd say we're not listening very well. Mm, that's good. That's good. Yeah, like just as you're as you're speaking on that, um, you know, I I think about the stat that you shared with me that uh, around like um, transgendered youth having mm-hmm. the highest rate of suicide in in North America and things like that, and um, the 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 sad response that many people like not, like not even I can't even say the church I just say many people have had towards like like to, to towards the transgendered community and saying like well my version of what I think is correct means more than 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 people actually being alive mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean and, and and I remember when you took when you shared that stat with me and the reasons why that people gave for why they tried to harm themselves like it's just one of those heartbreaking moments it's like how do we how do we create space for those those narratives to be told in a way that say like like that like that can't happen again like we like 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 i, I think the church especially the church mm-hmm. has to be the place that where people find healing not more hurt and 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 the table i think like like going back to this part the table between rome and jerusalem says that like any time that we vow, that we try to vie for power um it's always going to sacrifice somebody. So the table between Rome and Jerusalem says we actually are going to give up power so that we can be present. We're going to give up even the notion of being correct so that we can be present or, or whatever. You know, you know what I mean? Because um, I know I know people that like they, they they use their they use some sort of half-ass um, arguments around things like what, what, whatever it is, like racism, whatever systemic oppression it is. And they're like, well, it doesn't really affect this or it doesn't really that. And they turn it into some sort of argument that's meant to be solved on a philosophical level versus on a hospitality level. And I think that when we actually begin to strip away our philosophical arguments and move to the space of hospitality, because the table is always a space of hospitality, um, we begin to care less about the correctness per se, and we begin to care more about creating space that that that, that invites, that actually heals. And I think like that's part of calling out the injustice mm-hmm. because you can't bring healing if you don't address the wound. And I, um, honestly, with with what you're saying, it goes to the point of if you are someone who um, is always protected by the injustices, you should feel uncomfortable once in a while. If you're an active participant in it, not just the notion of privilege to where you benefit from, but you actually live out the the um, narratives of oppression and say, yes, this is right, and I'm going to take what I want, the table should be uncomfortable for you because the table is transformative space. When you sit there, you should not remain the same as you were. Now, that's not dictating which way you move, but it should affect in such a way that for those in power become uncomfortable. For those who are powerless, they realize their value and the concept of a shared humanity can be experienced. Mm-hmm. That's good, that's good. Man, like, we spent a lot more time on that, on that question than, than anticipated, but I, I feel like it's, it's, such a, it's such a crucial question that, that's being asked there. Um, but let's, let's transition to the hard mm-hmm. question that you have here. What idea of Jesus did you first say yes to, and how has this idea of Jesus influenced the way you understood faith or live? Honestly, why don't we flip this a little bit with the way the conversation has been going from what idea of Jesus did we first say yes to? And then how has the new understanding of Jesus affected the way we understand our faith? Sure. Because it allows for a narrative progression since we've been moving that way. Okay. I'd say that that first Jesus I said yes to um, 
having been raised around the Christian tradition, um, I can't really remember when I first like raised my hand, said the, the prayer and, and said yes to Jesus because in my head, I was always a part of the subtext of my life. However, um, because I can remember uh, saying the prayer quite a few times, it, there was always, even though I was told I was loved, it was um, kind of like uh, you're loved, like you're loved by your alcoholic abusive father. He hits you, but he really loves you. Just don't make him too angry. Like, don't worry, he really loves you. It's just, you, you know, it's been a rough day and you kind of got in his way. And so it became that. So I got paranoid and I think I said the sinner's prayer 75 times before I turned 16 kind of a thing because what if I made a mistake mm-hmm. and turn into an angry, abusive, alcoholic father who may just decide to turn punitive even though, well, it does it for my own good. It's really love. Yeah, oh, that's, that's, and, that, and that's... And that's that's a hard version of Jesus, you know what I mean? Um, it's interesting, like, because like, I, I can relate to that version as well, but um, growing up in, in, in uh, a tradition that it wasn't, I can't say it was prosperity gospel, but there was definitely prosperity gospel kind of influences into the mix. The version of Jesus I first said yes to, if I'm really being honest, was kind of like genie Jesus. Like, whatever you ask for, God's going to give it to you. You know what I mean? And I remember, like, after, I remember after saying, like, okay, well, we were in Sunday school, and the teacher was talking about this and this and this, and, you know, and so, okay, I, I, said, I said the prayer again. I'm, I, I made sure I'm saved now, because I said it again. I know I said it, I know I said it before, but I said it again. And I remember on the way home praying, like, hey, Lord, I really want a set of golf clubs. I really want a set of golf clubs. My, my, my grandfather golfed. Okay, let's see, dude, I've known you for years, and you have never went to the golf course with me, so... Yeah. No, my grandfather golfed, and so I just really wanted a set of golf clubs because I wanted to be like my, my grandfather, you know what I mean? And so um, I, when I got home and I opened up my closet and there was no golf clubs, I was, I, I was very disappointed in Jesus. I was like, okay, hey, Lord, what do I have to do in order to get these golf clubs? Actually, that notion is this similar for myself because um, I was found out to be diabetic when I was 11 years old. And in this kind of narrative of wanting those golf clubs, which I don't know if for you, um, for me, I heard some of those things of if you're good enough, because it was always God will answer whatever you pr- give you, whatever you pray for. But then there was this kind of like good enough qualitative checklist next to it of, yeah, did absolutely. you say your prayer right? Um, did you do your devotion? Did you tithe? Um, is there any hidden bad thing? Yeah. For, yeah. For me, definitely it was, it was more, it was connected to like, I just, I must not have enough faith. Yeah. So I was trying to up my level of faith because I really wanted golf clubs. Yeah, and I had some of the same there. And from my tradition, we also had uh, related to the prosperity-ness. Um, if it didn't happen for you, then you kind of had like these um, Sherlock Holmes of sin finding that would make 25 random connections and somehow find the point to where really it was your own brokenness that caused your illness. Like at 11, I was asked what sin I committed to get judged by God to get the disease. Mm-hmm. And so I got prayed for a few times and I was so convinced, I was so hyped up at the, at the um, prayer service to do it. I was like, you know what? It worked. I'm healed. I'm not going to take my medicine. Thankfully, my father was wise. Um, didn't immediately just say no. He's like, you know what, son? How about instead of celebrating with ice cream, we can get to that. What if you just don't take your evening shot because you had to have one for the nighttime sleeping because your sugars can creep up overnight. 
and, and we'll test the blood together in the morning. He said, but don't eat extra food tonight. Like, don't do anything crazy. We'll just say, if, if God healed you, he's not scared of a blood test. So we'll, we'll just do, for, before breakfast, we'll test your blood. Okay, so, you know, I know that you wanted to kind of make it more narratively focused in this question, but I, I feel like in light of the story that you just shared, I think how, like, I actually, I'm curious to know how that story, that version of Jesus, that version of faith that you grew up with has influenced the way you understand faith now. Because I would say, like, just in, in, in knowing you, mm-hmm. I, I can see some effects of that story playing out still today. You know what I mean? How so? Um, I would say that, like, Growing, like, like both of us grew up in a Pentecostal tradition, and so we, so in, in a theoretical sense, it's like cool healings, all that kind of stuff. That are, sure, right? Um, but when it comes to for you, you're very, you're very skeptical of that. You're very like standoffish. Like I don't know if I can e- even hope for something like that um, anymore. And and so I, I would just be curious, like like to kind of lean in and press in a little bit, like because that story has shaped your faith now. As much as you find liberation in mm-hmm. other places, that story has actually held you captive in certain ways. I know in anything we've experienced, any stories that we've told actually become a part of our story. So in that, yeah, it still um, has an influence on me, not as dramatic then, because in those moments I would go back to um, what did I do wrong? And actually had a pretty strong impact that for whatever reason, I wasn't worthy enough to be seen. Uh, the traveling evangelist who prayed for me and they rented out a hall in the middle of town to have that service that said I was healed. When heard I wasn't healed the next day, I was like, oh, well, what you really have to do, and suddenly had an addition to it to make sure that he wouldn't be in town when I found out. Yeah. It was like I had to read every passage on healing in the entire Bible every day for a year, and you'd be healed. Wow. He, he made sure to distance it. Um, because that way he would be gone. Mm. And it's uh, more magical thinking. Um, so the way that has affected the way I understand faith now is like, I do have an aversion to it. And that aversion is because um, I have found it more harmful than beneficial in anything I've ever seen. And I've witnessed more people going into the hospital. Also where I was raised was next to a church who I won't name that, um, they had a good reputation in the community for some of their charitable giving, but I had family who worked in the hospitals who would always ask my family um, how we could be so irresponsible because this church sends more people to the ER for healings who people stop taking their medications and how to be um, medevaced to the hospital mm-hmm. than anywhere because they were a center for faith healings that kept our emergency rooms flooded. Yeah. Um, that has impacted now that's like, I'm more prone to the tangible. I'm more prone to, it's all well and good if something comes through, but, um, I forget the old, uh, minister who became famous with the saying of, um, work like it all depends on you pray. Like it all depends on God. Yeah. I know the saying, I can't remember the. the yeah. And that's, that's honestly the way it fact, because it, it made me a bit jaded to, um, when anyone says something like, I'll pray for that, it's like, oh, so you're useless. Well, good on you. I'm glad you can absolve yourself of the need to help a human by trying to do your magic words. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's where um, 
where I've been able to step back into some of those traditions has been the prayers of the saints throughout history, because most of them weren't magic thinking. They were contemplative reflections, moments of veneration, these words of like, we recognize the um, more presence of God throughout the world. Um, but when it gets anywhere close to the magic thinking of something's going to happen, or when we were told, like you and I both were told by a gentleman that money was going to flow through our hands for ministries and all this, like anytime I hear those, as soon as you start going that direction, I'm like, oh, you're useless and you should go away. Yeah, well, they, they didn't lie. Money has flowed through our hands. Just, it was a trickle. <laughs> <laughs> but they called for a flood. Dude, it was a trickle-down blessing. <laughs> it was flooding up here. Trickle it down here. <laughs> well, yeah, I'd say um, that's where it, it affected me the most because it's, it's made that notion of um, actual presence difficult because anytime someone goes close to that route, um, in my head, it's either you're a fool or you're a charlatan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. Well, thank thank you for sharing that, man. Because I, I know that's it's 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 it, it comes from a hard story and and from from wounds that were inflicted by I can't even say necessarily well-meaning people all the time. But uh, well, it, no. For that, I can say one of the the gentlemen who said, "What sin did I commit at 11 years old?" I have to give him credit. Again, I won't use names for these, just somehow in the shrinking world of electronics, I don't want them to hear. Okay. Um, so we'll say Joe from Arizona. Joe from Arizona, yes, I like that guy. But Joe from Arizona called in and he put himself in the hospital that I knew him in my early teens six, seven times because he would feel convicted about taking his old age medication um, as he started to realize that you're not going to be 20 forever. And he would say, I'm done with this because I believe in God. And he would throw away all his medications. Mm -hmm. And it usually lasted about three days before we'd see the ambulance run through town. And since I knew who drew of it, uh, drove it, my dad would, would call her up and be like, hey, what happened? Like, we saw you in a rush. It's like, well, Joe from Arizona decided that God healed him and he was tired of leaning on the crutches of medication. Yeah. So, so, but he had well intentions. So when he spoke to me, it wasn't out of a place of controlling me. It was out of a rather fervent belief that this is the absolute structure of all things. Okay. No. All so right. I at least have to give him that grace. Like he, it wasn't abusive. It worked out to be traumatic and abusive, but it was from a place of he thought he had the the full story, and had very little flexibility that maybe there was a centurion around there as well. Got you. Okay. Um, so just in, in, in light of, of time, because um, we've been going for a minute here, uh, I would love for you to share, like how, like literally, like coming from the narrative that you're talking about right mm -hmm. now, how can you then take steps to invite people into a better, more expansive story, a story that includes healing for, 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 for the, the pain that, that, that was caused in the mix or the woundedness that was caused, but also maybe an openness to the possibility of healing um, in, in, in the more fantastical way as well, because mm. I think those are both wounds that, that were inflicted in, the, in light of that version of Jesus that you encountered, right? So maybe if you could like say, like, what would be, what, what are some ways that you could actually step into a more expansive story? Well, my first thoughts, a bunch of tongue in cheek comments of, well, just pray for it and it'll happen. But that's rude and not all that sharing of the table. Um, 
I'd say, how do we make steps to inviting people into that better story, or at least how have I in my life? I've owned the. Well, actually, if just to pull back a little bit, I, like, like I'm, I want to, I want, I would love to hear this question answered in light of the story you've just been sharing. Yeah, what steps can we take to invite people? Yeah, no, but I'm just, I'm just saying, like, like specifically for you versus theoretical, like what we can do. I would just, I'm just oh, interested I, in hearing about you at this moment because I want to listen to you, man. Oh, my heart just grew three sizes. <laughs> um, the way that I've tried to invite people in is um, I have actually um, named rather than rationalized or justified those traumatic experiences because like with Joe from Arizona, um, what he did was abusive and harmful. And I will not say that it wasn't. I do try to extend grace though and say, although I experienced this as abusive and harmful, I do not believe that was his intent. Although there is trauma, there is harm that I've experienced in these things, that the person's intent was harm. They wanted to manipulate, control, and abuse. Um, but in this case, and I've tried to be able to allow myself enough space to reflect and to name these traumatic experiences as trauma. While um, for the people who are around these kind of traditions, and especially if we take any of the stories of scripture as anything close to anything real, that, that's enough distance from the story to make it like, if there's any plausibility in a God who is present in Acts, I myself um, will begrudgingly uh, pray if I'm forced to for those kind of like more fantastical events. Um, but I allow other people space too. So if, if that is where you feel like you're either gifted, called, or this means a lot to your tradition, I will create space around it for you to enact it and own this fact that, you know, right now, that's not a good look for me. Like right now, I can't with anything close to sincerity. Mm -hmm. I would have to put so many qualifiers, um, which makes me laugh when you have to phrase like, well, God, if you think this might be a good idea someday, possibly, you don't like pain in the other person's life. No pressure, though. If you do it, you do it. If you don't, you don't. And those are all awesome endings. Yeah. If you do it, yay for you. If not, give us the strength that we can say, that's cool. Um, that just feels dumb to me. Like, if, if that works for whoever um, hears this, like, good. Like, to me, that just feels so disingenuous. Because I really, I'm qualifying myself out of a asking anything real to me. Yeah, and I think, like, I just want to highlight something mm -hmm. that what you're saying there to me that is, is really beautiful, actually, is that um, you, you come from a posture saying, like, like, honestly, I can't necessarily go there, but I never want to limit somebody else's voice. And I think that's the beautiful part about the pos that posture at the table is that, like, maybe you don't have the ability to be able to move the, or the capacity to move that way. Um, but someone else at the table does have that capacity to move that way. And in being open to say, I'm open for them to be present and for them to like, hey, that's how you roll, roll that way. And, you know, like at the end of the day, um, there, there's that shared mutuality of, of possibility because you, the way that you see possibility may be different than the way they see possibility. But at the end of the day, it's still the possibility of Christ that can be multiplied and, 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 and experienced in so many different ways. And I, and I think like the posture that you're coming to the table with is a beautiful thing because it creates space for that to happen. And I, I think that'd be the um, more expansive story to me is before when I was around some of these traditions that were harmful to me, the story was very narrow 
and you were either falling in line with us or were tearing out the section of the textbook that we dislike. Um, you're either following in line with us or you're declared enemy of the state and wrong. But to have this ability to say um, it's about the community. So again, as long as you're not being harmful, as long as you're not being abusive, as long as you're not being violent, we have space for you to have expression, voice, and say, here is how I've experienced God. Because that doesn't demand that this is how you've experienced God, does not necessitate demanding this is how I experience God. And so it allows us in a, to have a multiplicity of voices around the table that both have the, this is how I've experienced, but this is how we gather as well. So we don't separate one from the other. Mm. I think this is probably a great place for us to begin to wrap up, man. But I just want to thank you for um, being open with your story in the mix of that, because it allowed us to kind of just kind of walk through this more from your perspective. But but I think it actually gave us a great way to kind of narratively actually enter into this this in, enter into these questions. So I really appreciate your openness and willingness to to go there, man. Um, with that, you want to just kind of give us some summary points. Yeah, like always, we try to have a summary since. Um we cover a few topics and have a few ideas. But in the head question of what kind of Messiah are we or our tradition looking for, we discovered that, at least for Carl and I, the Messiah that we often heard about was a controlling overlord that had a tendency to be abusive. Um, and how did sitting between Rome and Jerusalem with Jesus challenge this notion? We were able to experience a God who didn't shy away from naming injustice or were power abused, but kept the table open that both the oppressor and the oppressed could come sit and find a new way. I always stepped into my own story of how did this Jesus that we, I was introduced to affect how I understood my faith. We went through how it created, it determined some of the ways I could imagine my faith and put limits where I thought God could be. And that life in the process of responding to the challenge of the Jesus between the two mountains had to challenge me at a basic level of saying, how could I imagine what faith could look like? And finding steps that we can take to invite people into that larger story, having to sit with the challenge of Christ. I'd found that you're allowed to name your trauma. Those were real and violent acts but still stay present at the table where we say we can create room for more voices because this is about giving room for more, not about taking away from. So in finding space for each other, it's a more beautiful uh, symphony coming out instead of a single note. And the only thing that we delimit from is the act of violence or harm that we can measure to another human. All right, awesome, man. Well, with that, uh, just want to thank you for, for joining us this week. Um, we're just, you know, we're grateful for the conversation that takes place in our community, FOS, and we would love for you to be a part of that. And so you can go to www.fos.church, that's fos.church, and you can find ways to connect with us and ways that you can join the conversation. All right, bless.